Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is Laura Stark from Vanderbilt University. I had the chance to talk with my colleague Amy Hemry about their new book, Building Access, Universal Design and the Politics of Disability. I had the chance to talk with Amy along with three students in my graduate course, New Approaches to Science and Technology Studies. They included Jordan Moody, Maggie Mang, and Ryan Dal-Dagan. So the book gives a long critical history of a specific approach to designing buildings, spaces, and technologies called universal design. The term crystallized in the 1980s as a technique for aesthetically pleasing quote-unquote good design that put disabled people at the center, often in contrast to the sorts of things that are associated with the 1990s Americans with Disabilities Act and barrier-free access, sort of institutionalized forms of design that are organized around individuals and uh, thought to be sort of institutional bureaucratic kinds of approaches. Universal design as a practice has been really usefully unstable, and as a politics, it continues to be reworked. As Hemar shows, the story of universal design was part of a centuries-long story about how designers imagined users. And really importantly, especially for people who are um, thinking about science and technology studies and feminist epistemology, the kinds of knowledge that's considered legitimate and how a successful design was measured. Did it allow everyone to be a productive worker and liberal market consumer? Or is it more about allowing people to take up space in their own way? And importantly, who counts as everyone? It was a really great pleasure both to read the book, which is full of pictures and a really beautiful object in its own right, and also to talk with Amy. I hope you enjoy. Amy, thanks so much for joining us. It's so great to be able to um, talk to you in person here at Vanderbilt. Um, so we really enjoyed reading um, Building building Access throughout the semester together. And I want to start off by um, dropping us into the middle of the book with an episode um, that we can sort of riff off of, I hope. So one of the um, interesting people who enters into the, the network of universal design is Ronald Mace. And um, in the in chapter six, you tell us about a moment when he gets home and gets a voicemail. Um, and it's uh, from Itzhak Perlman. <laughs> it's quite a day saying, I am pay uh, needs a little bit of help with Symphony Hall. Uh, please call. So do you use this as a way to set up a moment for universal design um, to say that it's experimental at this point in the eighties, moving into the nineties um, universal design as a movement is um, trying to work out both its public face and its internal theory. And you use the concept of barrier work, sort of thinking with Tom Skiran's boundary work um, to talk about how universal design as a movement was trying to work out its internal theory experimentally and sort of what the stakes are. So can you sort of take us to this moment, Ronald Mace, um, and to help us see what the what stakes were and what was happening with the theory of universal design? Thank you. Um, I love that you chose that moment because 
when I found that moment in the archive, it was kind of one of the most interesting kind of like, oh, these are real people doing this work in the world and connecting with each other through technology and all of these other things, um, kinds of moments for me. Um, so in the 1990s, um, after the Americans with Disabilities Act had passed, there was kind of this scramble to decide what accessibility would mean. And it was sort of a moment at which accessibility had to become um, kind of a more objective and measurable practice. And with that came an emergence of a kind of expert. And Ron Mace was one of those experts who was trying to establish simultaneously establish a field of knowledge and establish himself as an expert in that field. And people were recognizing him and coming to him as a disabled architect who was writing and doing research in this area and practicing. Um, they were coming to him and saying, you know, help us figure out this thing. And so the thing about IM Pei that was so interesting was that he was asking about how to make a, an elevator or escalator accessible. So it was also this question of kind of emerging technologies and um, and how they would interface with disability technologies and you know and I kind of wonder if, if the call was maybe transcribed in a funny way it was actually supposed to be about an elevator which would make more sense but um, <laughs> but yeah and then the connection too with Itzhak Perlman so you have this kind of um, global network of kind of famous disabled people who know each other and, and met through disability activist organizations. So Ronald Mace met Itzhak Perlman, who is a world-renowned um, Israeli violinist. Um, he met Perlman at a benefit concert for, um, I think, DREDF, if I remember correctly, the Disability Rights and Education Defense Fund, uh, which is a pretty like radical disability law organization. They, they do work on the school-to-prison pipeline and things like that. Um, so it kind of also shows the way that these experts were interfacing with disability culture and um, music and activism. Yeah. So one of the, um, the things you're highlighting is the way that um, uh, Ron Mace, and we see this with others throughout the book, are um, uh, deploying a form of what you call access knowledge. So the book is looking at architectural design and thinking about product design, but also really foregrounding um, epistemology and the way that um, knowledge about disability is used, what's, what is taken to be legitimate. Um, and you walk us through the idea, the image of the user at various points in time. And the first chapter is on the normate template, which probably many people are familiar with, um, especially reading Haraway and mm -hmm. the, the dog, the, the, suit, the mm -hmm. Vitruvian dog from the Vitruvian man, um, and how white male heteronormative citizenship was this model. And then it shifts um, in the 19th to 20th century to thinking of something that might seem more expansive um, with World War One and a lot of the disability history that some people might be familiar with. But what you really focus on is how even at that moment, the reliance on industry, research coming out of industry, research coming out of the military was nonetheless focused on productive citizenship. So it was very, very much tied to the economy. 
but this starts to shift through various forms of activism. And so I want to hand it over to Maggie to sort of pull out this, this theme a bit. Absolutely. Thank you. Um, so one of the big frameworks that you actually introduced early on in Building Access and that it interweaves itself throughout the rest of your book is that of access knowledge. Um, and I was wondering if you could discuss this a little more and how it uh, frames the rest of your book, your argument. Sure. Um, so my general sense of how people talk about universal design typically is um, that they are very focused either on the concept of universal design or on the objects that come out of it. And so there's a lot of citation of um, principles and also curb cuts and things like that. And I kind of wanted to do more of an intellectual history of universal design and to think about how ideas circulate and interface with one another and then produce um, new ways of knowing and making and all of these things. And that really kind of um, in the world of producing the built environment, knowledge is always entangled with material production. And this is something that architects implicitly know. Um, and Ronald Mace as an architect who was trained in a specific tradition that was about kind of applying empirical research to architectural design. Um, he kind of like made it very explicit in the work that he did. And so when I started working on universal design um, as a feminist epistemologist, it was kind of clear to me that there was something that was happening here that was about making it um, more uh, legible that there's always a knowledge base behind every design decision and that design decisions are also producing knowledge or perceptions of who's going to be in the world and that this shifts historically and that those historical shifts are important for understanding um, really kind of just like basic questions of like why is it that architects do or do not design with a particular type of use or user in mind. And so that's what the framework of access knowledge is about. It's very much, you know, in reference to Foucault's idea of power knowledge, um, but thinking about access itself as a form of power um, and as a material arrangement, and then thinking about um, knowledge uh, as very situated in relationship to that. Um, one of the things I especially admired about the book, thinking of your own training in uh, feminist epistemology, um, is that the book is really important both, I feel like, for historians and anybody coming out of traditions in STS. And I have to say it's the, it's the best methodological use of Karen Barad's uh, framework that I've actually been able to uh, really grapple with. Thank you. Um, so thinking about uh, why it's necessary to think about an agential cut and how to actually use diffraction um, and these sorts of tools that Barad gives us. Um, this is just such a nice, um, uh, light, but really pointed use of those concepts methodologically in this book. Um, and so thinking about um, your um, what you're raising about user, uh, maker users, um, and the forms of work that goes into producing sort of our the built environment, but also the histories. Um, one of the things that you're showing also is the way that historical knowledge is really tied up um, in this whole process. And I think that um, 
I think it might be chapter four, you make this point really well by giving us um, two um, sort of parallel histories, versions of a history of curb cut debates in Berkeley. And so I wonder if you can talk about how one could read sort of the smooth liberal version of this, um, these curb cut um, activities in Berkeley um, in the 19... When was that? 60s in the 1960s, as opposed to sort of the um, the additional history that you give us of this um, anti uh, anti assimilationist, more radical political history that it could, that it can be read as as well. Yeah. Um, so the way that the curb cut has been taken up um, as a kind of object or tool for thinking about accessibility, um, especially in a disability rights context, has been to say that, um, you know, a curb cut is like a ramp that smoothly transitions us from one plane to another. And there are all these metaphors that are based on the curb cut or the ramp in that type of reading. Um, So there are, uh, you know, people will often say, like, uh, this text provides an accessible curb cut into the idea of blah, 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 or um, there's the concept of the electronic curb cut, which is um, a kind of, like, more user-friendly web technology or something like that. And, um, And, you know, when I was doing archival research on the history of curb cut and ramp design in the independent living movement of the 60s and 70s, I was noticing that the way that they were conceptualizing these technologies was completely different. Um, even though they, the work that they did eventually led to this kind of like liberal assimilationist disability rights context, they were explicitly anti-assimilationist and interested in using the making of the curb cut as a kind of uh, direct action. And so these, these stories that get told in um, kind of like Crip theory, for example, in Robert McClure's book, um, and in disability activism, um, more generally, that is kind of a more like an anti-assimilationist or disability justice bent um, rather than disability rights. Um, the stories are more about uh, disabled people smashing sidewalks with sledgehammers and pouring curb cuts with bags of cement, and there's a whole kind of mythology around that. And um, the people who were involved in that movement say that they didn't actually smash the curb cuts with sledgehammers. Um, and so they contest that narrative. But there are other disability activists in other places that have done that. But but what I was trying to kind of bring forward is that the stuff that they were doing was still operating in this kind of very activist um, and uh, like anti-establishment, um, anti-assimilation kind of way, and that it was infused in their, um, their political activism against the rehabilitation profession and um, in ideas about creating public space that is more accessible. They were kind of working more in the mode of um, what is sometimes called guerrilla urbanism, um, which is like kind of when people go out into the built environment and change stuff without asking anyone and just doing what they want and um, changing the world. And, um, and that's very different than kind of like going through official channels and getting permits and that sort of thing. And so I was really interested in drawing out kind of the textures, like literally the textures of this type of design, um, the reliance on like sand and paint to create friction on a 
wheelchair ramp um, or raised bumps um, and things like that to show that it's really not this kind of like smooth integration that it, that they were seeking. They were actually trying to produce a built environment where um, moving through uh, was like slow and people would stop and notice kind of what the features of it were. Um, and that's very, very different than um, the narratives that exist around the ADA, which is that it kind of like swooped in and overnight the world changed and everything's better and um, we know that that's not true. And so I think kind of going back to some of those like material stories can give us a blueprint for politics. Yeah. Um, one of the things that um, really struck me was the way that the curb cut being uh, being rough and being unfinished is a nice way to hold on to the the fact that activism, politics, universal design is a process. It's still unfolding and actually to draw attention to that um, intentionally as opposed to having it be something that should, uh, the roughness of it, go away. Uh, yeah. So in that, in that chapter, you also use the term crypt technoscience, which is, um, I feel like, really generative and fruitful because it, it pulls back into um, the question that Maggie asked about access knowledge and thinking about different forms of access knowledge. So it matters whether the user in mind is the user of um, the science of gerontology or the science of rehabilitation or whether it's crypt technoscience um, and thinking about the experiential knowledge um, of people with disabilities. So could you just sort of uh, give us sort of a, a little line on how you think about crypt technoscience? Yeah, um, so crypt in this usage is the um, kind of radical disability reclamation of the word cripple. Um, it's an anti-assimilationist position and um, crypt technoscience is uh, literally like these anti-assimilationist kind of like uses or designs of technology um, to produce new material arrangements. And I developed this concept very much thinking about feminist technoscience, the way that Donna Haraway and especially Michelle Murphy think about it, um, the uses of technoscience, not just as kind of like um, doing bad stuff to people or controlling bodies or, you know, things like that, but um, technoscience is a an activist kind of application or practice. Um, one of the um, things that seemed to really um, come out of a shift in um, uh, access knowledge was also the idea of epistemic activism. And so I want to hand this over to Jordan to, to pick up on epistemic activism. Yeah, I would love to draw attention to the epistemic community within universal design. Um, how does a focus on the relational work of actors within this community show readers how epistemic activism can happen from within? Mm -hmm. So I think you're referring to um, the way that in some of the chapters I trace the relationships, like how people knew each other. Um, so uh, the I was really drawing on this idea of epistemic cultures um, that comes from SDS and um, Marcetina's work um, and thinking about um, also activist communities and the way that um, they like the community part is really important to the political action and strategy part. So in the 70s and 80s, when an expert culture was emerging around accessibility, all like kind of a predictable set of people were at 
meetings and conferences and things like that. And they were developing these strategies over time. And it was really interesting to find them across all the different archives and kind of try to piece them together and create a timeline because then it became really clear kind of what they were doing, what new language they were using, or um, what ways they were talking about um, how to present these ideas to an outside audience. And the other part of it that's interesting to me is like how um, movements interface with the dominant culture. And so a lot of these people who are kind of framing as epistemic activists were bringing in star architects and people in rehabilitation and all this stuff and trying to kind of like scheme with them too. And so um, the relationships were pretty much everything. Um, and that you can't see those relationships just by looking at the objects, um, but you can trace them um, through things like conference proceedings and um, workshops and co-publications and those sorts of things that leave traces of what those activist moves may have been. Um, so thinking about this moment when uh, in the in the 60s when activism around um, this is really picking up, um, the one of the things that you, I think, um, really clearly show is the way in which an analogy to the civil rights movement is actually creating a lot of justice problems because it's suggesting that there's not actually a connection between um, forms of spatial belonging and restrictions from space um, in space. And so um, showing how even some of the moves um, towards talking about who is how design for all Americans um, can at times conceal um, the, the, the ways in which these um, forms of exclusion are dependent, really dependent on each other. Um, but the, these moments of activism, as they're coming out, the, the people who are involved seem to really be working out the public face and the internal theory simultaneously. And so Ryan wanted to, um, to ask you a bit about the code switching element early on in universal design. So you mentioned in chapter six how advocates for universal design employ the code switching, changing languages depending on who they're talking to, um, and their advocation for universal design. I wonder if you could uh, just explain how these nuances in language surrounding universal design affect the legibility of particular groups or individuals. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so in kind of disability activism more generally, there are these two sort of streams. And one is a very um, like medical model kind of drive stream. And there are activists in that, you know, rehabilitation professionals who had a view of disability as something that needed to be fixed, but also were advocating for a more accessible world. And then the um, more radical disability movement kind of independent living stream um, that was self-advocacy based um, and based on kind of like what now we call crypt theory, ideas related to crypt theory, um, kind of emerged as a parallel phenomenon. And these are in some ways, like they share certain goals, but they also um, really fundamentally disagree politically about many things. And so um, for people like Ronald Mace um, or Ruth Hall Lusher, who were disabled 
designers, they kind of had to navigate both of these worlds a little bit and be able to speak to what the dominant understanding of disability was at the same time that they were trying to challenge that in these really subtle ways. And so that has had a lot of implications for um, kind of how disability politics gets perceived. Like it's one of many experiments and I'm not sure that it was always very successful, but um, this idea of kind of like taking mention of disability out of universal design, for example, was a way of addressing, trying to see if you could get architects to build accessible buildings um, without talking about disability if they thought disability was a bad thing that they didn't want to talk about. Um, but the flip side of that is that there isn't really like a very good understanding of disability in the architecture profession. In the work that I'm doing now, I spend a lot of time with architects and urban planners who think that I'm like a gerontologist or something, and they only <laughs> want to talk about aging as disability. And I keep saying, there are so many disabled people who are not aging, and aging does not, it's not the same thing. And so um, there are illegibilities that are created as well as legibilities um, with that kind of code switching. Could you talk us through um, one of the examples that I, I feel like gets at this? And I'm thinking in particular at the, the door handle lever example, door level, lever um, opener, in that um, the way that this was getting framed um, in, some, in some moments was as something that was useful for everybody because there's rarely occasions when, you know, my day goes as planned and I'm, I'm using the world optimally or in the way that it's intended, but in showing how, um, uh, design can be useful for people who are aging or for children, um, or for, um, just everyday, uh, people without disabilities that this actually causes some, um, uh, resistance and problems rightfully from the disability um, justice perspective. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it's sort of related to this idea of whether there is one thing that is good design. And, um, you know, I tried to show that good design is very contested. Um, it's, it's a term that's often used strategically towards certain ends. And so one of those ends is showing that the typical, doorknob, which is the round kind that one grasps like, kind of like with five fingers and, and lots of dexterity, um, is inaccessible to a broad group of people. And so that there should that be a shift to the lever style door handle, which just requires that um, someone pushes down on it. And that could be like with an elbow or a cane or um, anything like that. And, um, you know, on the one hand, it is it's like there's the empirical claim that, you know, this disadvantages more people than it helps. And so we should shift to this other type of design. Um, but there are other considerations that kind of have to come into it, too. Um, one of them has to do with uh, product marketing and, uh, you know, from a disability justice perspective, uh, accessibility shouldn't be reduced to products that we consume and kind of like shifting to a new, um, new shiny thing. And, um, it should really be about kind of, uh, like creating environments with people and with users. And so there may be issues that arise, um, kind of with assuming that like advocating for a new type of product, 
uh, is without politics in some way, or that it's um, politically virtuous without uh, considering kind of the broader context of, you know, who benefits from this shift. And uh, one of the ways that people may or may not benefit from that shift is where the products get used. Um, if people like are marketing products that only get used in like suburban single family homes, then that isn't going to create more accessible public space, for example. So there are a lot of exclusions that can still result even when someone is allotting uh, a certain te technology as an example of universal design. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so the user in mind at various points um, as it shifts in the history and, and uh, the proto-history of universal design, at some moments it's in very often um, is the the productive worker um, and also the the consumer, and it's it really holds on to this um, market notion, very individualized rather than sort of systemic idea about what is causing problems. Um, is it the people who are causing problems? Is it, is it an issue of economics exclusively, rather than the issue of spatial belonging and systemic um, sort of the structures in which people are. Uh, in the present day and historically working within. Um, since so Ryan wanted to ask you a bit about sort of the unfolding um, uh, character of universal design itself and sort of to um, have you riff a bit about your own, your own take on it. Yeah, so go for it, Ryan. Sure. So universal design, as you acknowledge in the book, has a lot of different iterations and definitions that kind of shape the term and the field of interest, and I wonder if you could help explain how understandings of both historical and present-day struggles against inequality help to inform your understanding of the term. Of, um, of the different iterations of mm -hmm. universal design? Um, yeah, let me make sure I understand your question. Are you asking about how uh, contemporary movements may influence how I'm thinking about this? Right. Um, so, I mean, I am definitely... Uh, very much influenced by what I've learned from the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and when I was working on this book, also kind of like thinking a lot about uh, what a commitment to racial justice means um, in academic work and outside of that and in the intersections and, um, and thinking about um, how one response to Black Lives Matter was this kind of like all lives matter and um, as I was kind of watching this unfold or observing people having fights on Facebook and things like that, it really struck me that um, there were so many similarities to the way that people talked about universal design. And so it seemed uh, like this conflict um, within a kind of like disability activist context too, that, um, that the commitment to kind of universal would often uh, eclipse these um, finer grained kind of injustices that needed to be paid attention to. And um, disability studies, for example, has historically been very white, and uh, there has been uh, a lot of like contestation of that in recent years. And um, the interventions of Black disability studies have really brought uh, key historical figures to the fore. And um, brought black studies into disability studies, but I was thinking a lot about accountability um, as part of disability justice, and part of that for me needed to be um, 
connecting universal design to broader struggles over what lives are thought to matter, what bodies are thought to matter, um, and uh, how how does that play out also in the capitalist context when all design is governed by property relationships, basically, um, and how does that shape subjectivities and uh, perceptions of who's going to be in Maggie, why don't you why don't you hop in? Because you had a related question about um, the act of writing hmm. itself. Um, so I know that you were very intentional about making building access um, accessible for your readers. What does accessible writing mean to you, and what were some of the challenges to writing accessibly as it pertained to this project? Mm, that's such a good question. So um, as a disability studies scholar, I have a commitment to accessible writing. And as someone who studies universal design, I know how um, how impossible it is to pursue a politics of purity around that. And so I was thinking a lot about um, my work as um, having many chapters and the book being one of those that's making a specific intervention um, and talking to a particular audience. And that audience, even though hopefully other people will read it, but that audience was really like, people in disability studies and people um, who are doing universal design uh, to kind of like expand the way that they're thinking about this history that keeps getting cited and repeated. And so um, that did kind of help narrow a little bit what accessible writing um, had to be. And something that I really struggled with was that I love epistemology and I just want to write about epistemology, all the time. <laughs> but epistemology is like the least accessible philosophical domain, probably. Um, it's very technical and uh, not everyone has patience or like even wants to read that. And so kind of thinking about doing like a narrative epistemology or something um, helps to make things more accessible. And then also, um, in recent years, there have been conversations in disability studies about our books as technologies and how they're designed. And so when I was negotiating my contract for my book, for example, um, I made sure to negotiate for the, um, the ebook and the paper book to be released at the same time so that people who access books with screen readers could um, access them. And then to incorporate like enough depth of image description into the text that, um, even if someone wasn't like looking at the images that they would uh, be able to understand the story. And that's like a place where I also feel like there needs to be more. Like I would love to publish another book that just describes the images in this book. Cause there are like 80 images in this book and they're all, they're sort of like primary sources that are described in the text. But I, I imagine there's so many other stories to tell just by describing the images. And so that's the way that this book is not, universally accessible it doesn't include a full image description um, for every single uh, image um, or like full caption um, and that has to do with all sorts of other things related to academic publishing so yeah those are just some of the things I was thinking about um, your answer is such a nice reminder that it's these um, seemingly just everyday mundane things like reading a, a book contract sort of thing is a really, it um, is a political act and there's a way to shape things differently by making different decisions about uh, 
the form that a book takes and the, the, the timing in which different versions are released. Um, and it's really interesting to hear. The book is beautiful, yeah. by the way, and the images are incredible. Um, and again, it's the most, it is the most, um, um, the connection to forms of epistemology, again, thinking about Karen Barad <laughs> that, that I've come across. So I, um, just wanted to say thanks for that. Um, and thinking about um, accessible writing, one of the things, again, that it's, it is a good reminder about is that archives themselves are, of course, not neutral. So thinking about um, the history of archives and what knowledge is easier or harder to access. And so Jordan wanted to follow up um, to hear a bit more on the archive issue. Part of what makes Building Access such an important text is its inclusion of such rich archival um, research. Could you walk us through how you gathered your sources and what that looked like? Yeah, um, it was so, uh, it was it was like a series of like very fortuitous events. Um, <laughs> I, I actually set out when I was writing the dissertation version of this to do an ethnography um, and I was going to do a little bit of background research in the archive and and that was going to be it and um, I started out in a couple places um, the National Museum of American History where uh, Catherine Ott is a disability curator there um, she had an unsorted collection of all of this stuff from Ronald Mace and the Center for Universal Design. It was just in her office. And the museum has tons of other stuff that had been sorted. And those collections are sorted now. So they the boxes have call numbers and stuff. But when I was looking at them like six or seven years ago, they were just boxes on the top shelves of her office. And I sat in the employee break room and looked through them and people would come in and be like, what are you? Like, why aren't you in the archives center downstairs? And I'd have to explain. Um, and then Catherine connected me to Joy Weaver, who um, is the surviving partner of Ron Mace. And she's also a disability studies scholar and psychologist. And it turned out that my advisor, who's Rosemary Garland Thompson, also knew Joy because Joy was a member of the Society for Disability Studies. And so she had this like whole career that was separate from Ron's um, and other people knew her. And so I was going down to Raleigh, North Carolina, to look at um, the Ron Mace archives at North Carolina State. And um, I got there and Joy and I decided to have brunch one day. And she like took me around the city and we took photos of all the ADA violations and sent them to the <laughs> Department of Justice. And she was just like so awesome. But she was like, I'm going out of town this week, but here's a key to my house. All of Ron's stuff is still in his room and under this staircase. Feel free to look at it. And so I, in the mornings, I would go to the official archive, um, which it turned out was missing a bunch of stuff that was actually under the stairs that Joyce said hadn't been looked at in 13 years. So there's a whole ghost story involved in this. Um, and I was sitting literally like uh, in his house, the house that he built to be accessible and looking through all of his things while she was not there. And then, you know, at the end of the week, she came back and told me a bunch of stories and gave me some of his Edward Gorey books and stuff. So there's this really... Um, like really unexpected series of things that led me to those collections. But that's where I found some of the most important stuff in the book, like his senior honors thesis and things like that. Um, 
And then I visited a bunch of other archives that are a little bit more well-established, including the one at the Bancroft Library in Berkeley, um, which has the materials of the independent living movement. And, um, you know, but I would, I would say those unofficial collections, the unsorted ones that are still under a staircase, like in a house, uh, those are kind of the really important ones for me. Well, on, on this note, um, you've been so generous with your time. I'll probably just try to try to wrap up now. And one of the things um, that I think probably made us all sort of um, smile uh, in the room was to hear that anybody would think that you were a gerontologist uh, <laughs> that you mentioned earlier. <laughs> and this sort of points us in the direction of, um, of your new project and reading um, uh, building access and thinking about what I, what I know a bit about your, your current book project. Um, I wonder if I, I so I could, I could see it as, um, projects about spatial belonging and, um, the, the ways in which that are taken for granted in, at some times and in some, uh, in some communities, the, the taken for granted idea that, um, belonging is contingent on, uh, productive, uh, being a productive worker or being uh, being a consumer, how this is, can be really um, limiting. Um, and so I wonder if you could just uh, tell us what you're up to now, yeah. what ghost stories you're making now. Um, so I'm now doing an ethnographic project. Um, the book is called Enlivened City, and it's about the politics of the livable cities movement. Um, and I'm looking at things like um, how... Uh, the like urban development practices like greenways and healthy buildings and sidewalks and public transit and things like that um, how um, ideas about bodies and about life itself are coming into that process especially here in Nashville where I live um, where you know we've received like billions of dollars in funding for these livability projects and they're all very contested and so um, I've been doing ethnographic research with uh, urban planners and designers and walk bike advocates and local disability organizations and, um, and also doing a lot of archival research about how Nashville was built and um, some of those design, design decisions and how they really shape the world that we live in now. So this one's a little bit closer to place like all around where I live and um, and it gives me the opportunity to uh, talk directly to living designers and um, and explain what I do and, and why it matters um, so yeah that's what I'm doing now yeah yeah great great one of the things I know that you're also doing uh, really wonderfully among many other things uh, the Vanderbilt campus is um, your um, uh, critical design laboratory and so I encourage everybody um, both to pick up um, building access and also to check out the, the critical design lab from Amy Himmerai so thanks so much for your thank time thank you this is wonderful thanks 